Good evening to you all. I know many of you here, but those I don't know, I'm Christine Jinkin, Professor of International Law here at the London School of Economics. So it's my very great privilege and honour to welcome to the LSE Judge Patrick Robinson, President of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and to chair his lecture tonight. But that's the first thing, is to welcome you, Judge Robinson. to you. Second, though, to welcome all of you here in the audience, and that is on behalf of the Civil Society and Human Security Research Unit here at the NSE, who's been responsible for putting tonight's lecture on. Third are all the usual announcements. Uh, the hashtag for Twitter users, which is hash LSE rule of law, and you can all see it there. And also to say that tonight's proceedings are being recorded and hopefully also will be on pod podcast subsequently. In 1993, in um, response to the continuing media and other reports about the widespread and flagrant violations of international humanitarian law that were then taking place in the territory of the former Yugoslavia, including mass killings, mass organized and systematic detentions, rape and ethnic cleansing, the UN Security Council took what was an unprecedented step and created the International Criminal Tribunal for prosecution of people who were accused of these actions in the former Yugoslavia. This was the first international criminal tribunal created by the United Nations. It was the first international war crimes tribunal since the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals at the end of the Second World War. Now at the time, there was both sort of gloomy prognosis could such an international tribunal possibly work? Could it be effective in any way um, in bringing to justice people accused of these crimes? But there was also tremendous enthusiasm, particularly from civil society groups, who at the time saw it as an extremely important step towards ensuring accountability, ending impunity, important composite elements of the international rule of law about which the judge is going to talk this evening. So we're now, what, some sort of nearly two decades later, and it's a good moment to assess the very important contribution to the international rule of law that the ICTY has in fact made. And I would at this point like to say just how much of that was due to the leadership at the very beginning of the first president of your court, Judge Antonio Cassese, who died earlier this week, and who many people, certainly international lawyers, those who are very aware of the legacy of not just the ICTY but of international criminal adjudication in general are very much mourning at present. But now, two decades later, we've had 161 um, indicted proceedings, uh, 126 accused persons have been had their trials concluded, uh, there are ongoing proceedings still, I think, for 35 cases yes. and two pre-trial proceedings due to the late arrest um, of both Mladic and Hazjic. And since 2004 as well, the ICTY is now um, focusing on these sort of wind-down um, type proceedings, whereby the most senior people are now still being tried by the ICTY, but less senior people are being referred to courts elsewhere in the region. 
that was a very, very brief overview <laughs> sort of, of a very deep and rich history of the International Criminal Tribunal. And I think we've been especially fortunate here at the LSE. We've had a number of people coming from the tribunal at different times to speak about the work as it's unfolded over these two decades. We've also had a number of students who've been at the tribunal both as interns and in more permanent positions. But tonight we are especially honoured and privileged to welcome the current president of the tribunal, Judge Patrick Robinson. Judge Robinson is a barrister of Middle Temple, a graduate of the University College of the West Indies and of University of London King's College. He was first elected by the United Nations General Assembly as a judge of the ICTY back in 1998 and by his fellow judges as president of the court 10 years later in 2008. He's presided over many trials, including that of Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, he has also sat in the appeal chamber, including in its capacity as appeal chamber for the ICTR, the Tribunal for Rwanda. He has extensive and long legal experience, both with his government in Jamaica and through various bodies of the United Nations at different times. Um, I think it's very hard to think of anyone who has a greater knowledge of both the intellectual underpinnings of international law and international criminal law in particular, and practical experience of its operation. So it's with very great pleasure I hand over to Judge Robinson to address us on the subject of building an international rule of law. Thank you, Judge. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Chinkin, uh, Professor Chinkin, and Professor Caldor. Do I say students or ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I come to this school with a profound sense of linkage, inspired by the rich and historic relationship between the LSE and the region of my birth. The school has provided tertiary education for many Caribbean nationals and intellectual stimulation for a long line of Caribbean students who later became prime ministers of their respective countries, some of whom led their countries in, into independence or were closely associated with the struggle for independence. Forbes Burnham of Guyana, Michael Manley of Jamaica, Dame Eugenia Charles of Dominica, Errol Barrow of Barbados, John Compton of St. Lucia, P.J. Pattison of Jamaica, and Maurice Bishop of Grenada. Burnham, Manley, Charles, and Barrow all came under the influence of the brilliant LSE political scientists Professor Harold Lasky. Moreover, the great Caribbean economist, Sir Arthur Lewis, Nobel laureate in economics, also attended LSE. The school's contribution, therefore, to Caribbean leadership and the region's independence movement has been outstanding. Indeed, so many Caribbean luminaries studied at the LSE that you may very well think that I ought to be reluctant to disclose that the College of London University I attended was King's College. <laughs> King's College, of course, 
is stale compared to the LSE. And it was that way even when I was there. King's College students always came over to the LSE for events. Now the concept of the rule of law, which evolved from Professor Dice's writings in the late 19th century, is usually applied to a domestic jurisdiction. But today I want to look at the nature of the international rule of law. As a judge of an international criminal court, my function is to deal with situations in which the rule of law has failed. In such situations where there have been violations of international law, it is important that impunity does not follow, that action is taken to punish those responsible. But we must also not forget the importance of focusing our efforts on preventing the violations before they occur. And toward this end, we must take an analytical approach and consider what steps must be taken to strengthen and promote the culture of the rule of law at the international level. As is implicit in the importance John Adams attached to a government of laws and not of men, the rule of law in calling for the supremacy of the law proscribes arbitrariness and mandates equal treatment before the law. These two generally acknowledged principles of the rule of law were articulated by Professor Dicey in 1885. In 1959, the International Congress of Jurists met in New Delhi to discuss the rule of law and the administration of justice throughout the world. They stressed, among other things, the universality of the rule of law and the importance of an independent judiciary. After the end of the Cold War, states came together in Copenhagen in 1990 to discuss and take stock of the rule of law at a domestic level. The Copenhagen meeting emphasized democracy and respect for the inherent dignity of the human person as essential elements of the rule of law, as well as equality before the law and the independence of judges. Perhaps the best indication of the developing international awareness of the rule of law is that in 2006, the United Nations established the Rule of Law Coordination and Research Group, which is chaired by the Deputy Secretary General and has since that time been active in the field. The discernment of the rule of law in a domestic setting and the search for both procedural and substantive justice are facilitated by an examination of domestic statutes and case law, which apply in the context of clearly delineated governmental structures. But when we speak of the international rule of law, the picture changes. The structure of the international legal order is certainly distinct from the domestic. It is disordered and non-monolithic. It is spread out among different international 
and regional instruments, some of which are not universally accepted, and also encompasses the law that results from the practice of states. Furthermore, at the international level, there are separate co-equal states interacting among themselves in relation to a variety of issues. There is no sovereign legislature and executive to make and enforce the law, nor is there a judiciary with general jurisdiction over all legal matters. The United Nations Charter is the instrument which creates a body with the closest approximation to universal coverage. In my first draft, I had jurisdiction, and I changed that to coverage. You probably will understand why. The range of issues it deals with is as wide as those covered by a national government and includes political and economic matters, development, and security. The UN Charter and other instruments of universal or near universal coverage may be seen as instruments with centripetal normative forces supporting an international rule of law. However, the pull of national sovereignty often functions as a centrifugal normative force gravitating away from an international rule of law. Regional instruments although confined to a specific geographical area, may nonetheless have features that are consistent with and in fact serve to promote an international rule of law. This is certainly true of the regional human rights instruments, setting out fundamental human rights which have passed into customary international law. It may be less true of other regional instruments such as those dealing with trade and economic matters, although one must note that even in those instruments, one may find features which can be seen as gravitating towards an international rule of law. But the UN Charter, of course, does not establish the United Nations as a supranational body. It does not seek to interfere with the governance of member states. And in fact, the UN system unequivocally entrenches the principle of non-interference, the sole exception being the Chapter 7 powers of the Security Council. It may be questioned whether the UN Charter provides a yardstick by which the rule of law at the international level may be measured. It may be better seen as simply a framework for global governance. Notwithstanding the disorganization of the international legal order and the lack of universal acceptance of many international legal standards, there are three norms of international law which are generally agreed to have universal application. The first are consensual agreements between states, that is treaties which are governed by the principle of pacta sunt servanda. The other two are customary international law and Euskogens. By, by customary international law, one means a widespread practice of states accepted by them as legally binding. And by Euskogens, one means a peremptory norm of general international law accepted and recognized 
by the international community as a norm from which no derogation is permitted. In my view, treaties, customary international law, and Juskogens constitute important prescriptive norms in international law and international relations and serve as strong deontological forces for building a culture whereby individuals, states, and international organizations conform their actions to normative standards. In principle, all three norms of international law provide for equal protection to natural persons, states, and international organizations. A treaty must be performed equally by all states' parties in accordance with their rights and obligations thereunder, irrespective of the state's size, influence, or wealth. No state can be forced to enter into a treaty against its will. Should that happen, the treaty is void. Customary international law binds all states equally, though states may agree to derogate from it, and views may differ as to what constitutes a rule of customary international law. Although the best-known application of Euskogans is found in Article 53 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, Euskogans applies generally and equally to natural persons, states, and international organizations. It also applies in other areas of international law and is particularly relevant in the discussion of the powers of the Security Council. It also applies more generally in the field of international humanitarian law. Significantly, measures that are inconsistent with Euskogans are automatically void not voidable, and need no institutional confirmation for their voidness to be effective. Now, building on DICE's principles and the recent international efforts to promote the rule of law, in an article I have written to be published in the West Indian Law Journal, I maintained that the rule of law, and this is at the domestic level, could be said to prevail when, firstly, everyone, natural juridical persons and public authorities is equally entitled to the protection of the law. Two, everyone, as just defined, is equally accountable to the law. And three, the claims of everyone, as I've defined it, are determined by a judiciary whose independence is secured by constitutional guarantees of the highest order. And four, when all of these principles apply in a system that recognizes among its core fundamental values respect for the inherent dignity of the human person and democratic governance. <laughs> Bearing in mind the difference between the domestic and international spheres, the challenge is to see to what extent these principles in this descriptive framework apply at the international level. And through this process, my aim is to assess 
the nature of the rule of law at the international level. I will look in particular at the obstacles in the way of the observance of an international rule of law. And the analysis will consider both lex lata, the law as it is, and lex ferenda, the law as it ought to be. In seeking to identify the nature of an international rule of law, we are looking for those features in the international legal order that are binding, universalizing, and perhaps centralizing. We are looking to see how these features tend to support or gravitate towards the building of a culture of an international rule of law. These features should show at the international level that the law prevails or should prevail over arbitrariness and brute force. So let us take my first element, which is that everyone is equally entitled to the protection of the law. And by everyone, I'm referring to natural persons, to states, and international organizations. There is no reason why at international level, everyone, as I've defined it, should not be equally entitled to the protection of the law. And the law, the protection to which everyone is equally entitled, is, as we have seen, the law of treaties, customer international law, and Luscovians. That is, in short, international law. With respect to natural persons, a significant development in international law over the past seven decades has been the movement from the traditional emphasis on states to a broader focus embracing individuals. Now, this development began after World War II with the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, and a number of regional treaties devoted to the protection of human rights. The equality of all persons before the law is the principle recognized by customary international law. The extent to which individuals will have equal protection at the international level will depend on their country's participation in certain treaties. Moreover, disparity may also arise from the failure of some countries to implement the recommendations of treaty bodies. However, quite apart from rights flowing from treaties, there is a strong case for saying that where there is a substantive right under customary international law, there is also a customary procedural right to ensure an effective remedy for breach of the substantive right. The existence of a customary right to an effective remedy for breach would undoubtedly serve to advance the rule of law at the international level. Many human rights instruments including the ICCPR, the American Convention on Human Rights, and the European Convention on Human Rights, contain rights which are accepted as having passed into customary international law. Many of these instruments also recognize the right of an individual to petition a particular body in order to seek a remedy 
for a violation of his human rights. Furthermore, in 2006, the General Assembly adopted, without a vote, the basic principles and guidelines on the right to a remedy and reparation for victims of gross violations of international human rights law and serious violations of international humanitarian law. These basic principles require equal access to adequate, effective, and prompt remedies for gross violations of human rights. Thus, the underlying principle reflected in these instruments, the right to an effective remedy for a breach of a fundamental human right, may very well exist in customary international law. However, in order to have that customary right enforced, an aggrieved person would have to identify a court or other body with jurisdiction over the matter. In sum, in principle, natural persons are equally entitled to the protection of the law at the international level. But the exercise of that right may be hindered by various obstacles, principally the disorganization of the international legal order and real politics. One of the most fundamental principles of international law and international relations is the equality of states. Indeed, Article 2.1 of the UN Charter provides that the United Nations itself is based on the principle of the sovereign equality of all its members. The right of all states to equal protection of the law has its foundation in the principle of sovereign equality, which is undoubtedly a peremptory norm from which no derogation is permitted. The fact that all states may not in practice enjoy equal protection may be a reflection of the political power relations between states and does not derogate from the validity of the principle itself. I turn now to what I think is the central theme. Everyone is accountable, is equally accountable to the law. Accountability is central to the discussion of the rule of law at the international level. There can be no international rule of law if states, natural persons, and international organizations are not equally accountable to the law. Accountability is the antithesis of impunity. Generally, accountability for wrongs committed by natural persons is dealt with at the domestic rather than the international level. But when international crimes are committed, the question of accountability under the international rule of law arises. Please don't understand me to be saying that international crimes can't be tried at the domestic level as well. During the post-World War II era, the concept of individual criminal responsibility gained traction so that officials of governments were no longer able to hide behind state responsibility. And today, individual criminal responsibility is the basis for the jurisdiction 
of all international criminal courts, such as my tribunal, that's the Yugoslavia tribunal, the Rwanda tribunal, the special court for Sierra Leone, the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, and the international criminal court. For example, Article 7.2 of the statute of the Yugoslav Tribunal provides that the official position of any accused person, whether as head of state or government, or as a responsible governmental official, shall not relieve such person of criminal responsibility, nor mitigate punishment. The idea that individuals, including those who are in charge of the official apparatus of a state, may be held accountable for breaches of international humanitarian law is a potent demonstration of the concept that all persons are accountable before the law and that no one is above the law. From the foot soldier on the ground to the head of state behind his desk, all must obey the law and all must be held accountable to the law in order for the rule of law to be maintained. And the Yugoslav tribunal has prosecuted persons across the entire spectrum, from Dusko Tadic, a prison guard, to Milan Lukic, a leader of a paramilitary group, to Ratko Miladic, commander of the Bosnian Serb army, to Radovan Karadic, president of Republika Srpska, and Slobodan Milosevic, pre the president of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. In that regard, international criminal law has, in its fight against impunity, made a significant contribution to the development of an international rule of law. The fundamental rule governing the accountability of states is that if a state commits an internationally wrongful act, its international responsibility is engaged. Article 1 of the highly regarded ILC's draft articles on responsibility of states reflects that basic principle of international law in a simple and unequivocal formulation. Every internationally wrongful act of a state entails the international responsibility of that state. Few would question the customary status of that rule or that it applies equally to all states. International responsibility arises for a breach of customary or conventional obligation. As a matter of law, all states that are party to a treaty are equally answerable to the extent of their rights and duties under the treaty for any breach of that treaty. Here again, the principle at work is pacta sunt servanda, and any intrusion of real politic does not detract from the soundness of the principle itself. But perhaps the most striking operation of the principle of equal accountability to the law at the international level is the application of customary international law and Euskogels, because neither depends on the consent of the state. For example, a state that is a party to the Fourth Geneva Convention, it's the 1949 Geneva Convention, 
which breaches the proscription of the use of force against civilian populations must face the consequences that flow from such a breach. But beyond that, a state that breaches that principle breaches not merely a conventional rule, it breaches a rule of general international law and more significantly, Yuskogin's. While the Charter as a whole does not seek to establish the UN as a supranational body, it does contain rules that bind member states, not only on a conventional basis, but also as rules of customary international law and even as Yuskogin's. And perhaps the most powerful and meaning provi meaningful provision in the Charter is Article 2.4, which prohibits states from threatening or using force against the territorial integrity or political independence of a state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the UN. In my view, Article 2.4 is one of the best examples of Yuskogin's. That is a peremptory norm from which no derogation is permitted. The prohibition of the use of force is a vital element of the rule of law at the international level because it is a rule that applies equally to all states. Chapter 7 of the UN Charter vests the Security Council with exceedingly broad powers to take enforcement action. In my view, the conduct of the Security Council in exercising its powers under this chapter at times militates against the principle of equal accountability of states for breaches of international humanitarian law. The reason for this is quite simple and straightforward. The Security Council is a political body comprised of only 15 of the 193 member states of the United Nations. And its response to perceived threats to international peace and security is determined by the member states' political motivations and in particular the interests of its five permanent members who have the veto power over all substantive decisions made by the Council. Accordingly, the response may be uneven and while some states may be held accountable for violations by being subjected to sanctions and other measures available to the Security Council, other states, equally culpable, may not. To counter that argument, it may be said that the UN Charter, akin to a world constitution, is a treaty and that the member states have agreed to grant the Security Council these powers. And for that reason, as the argument might go, it is inappropriate to identify the uneven response of the Security Council when using its broad powers as a feature that is antithetical to the achievement of the rule of law at the international level. But in my view, there is no denying that the actual use by the Security Council of its Chapter 7 powers can have an adverse impact on the principle of equal accountability of states for breaches of international law. But let us focus now more closely on the Security Council, the most influential organ of the most influential international organization, 
the United Nations to assess whether the consul is accountable to the law. As stated previously, Chapter 7 vests the consul with wide discretionary powers. When under Article 39, it determines the existence of any threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression. The Council will then make recommendations or decide what measures, measures shall be taken in accordance with Articles 41 and 42 to maintain or restore international peace and security. It has been said that the Chapter 7 powers of the Security Council do not admit of any limits and that the Charter gives precedence to international peace over international justice. And for that reason, it is questioned whether the rule of law is a binding principle in international relations. Much has been written about the nature and the extent of the Security Council's Chapter 7 enforcement powers. My own position is that the Council is not free to do whatever it wishes in the exercise of those powers. And this approach coincides with the position of the Yugoslav Tribunal, which in the Tadic case held that, and here I quote, neither the text nor the spirit of the Charter conceives of the Council as legibus salutus, that is, unbound by law. End of quote. While it is true that under Article 25, members agree to carry out decisions of the Council, this obligation must be understood as being subject to Article 24, to the Article 24 requirement that the Council act in accordance with the purposes and principles of the United Nations, which, as provided in Article 1, includes the duty to act in conformity with the principles of justice and international law. The law of the UN Charter, therefore, requires the Council and for that matter, the General Assembly, to act consistently with the principles of justice and international law, which includes the non-derogable principles of general international law, that is, Yuskogens. In my view, this provision in Article 1 counters the argument that justice is trumped by peace in the Security Council's exercise of its Chapter 7 powers. In the same way that states may, by agreement, derogate from a rule of customary international law, the Council may, in discharging its Chapter 7 responsibilities, derogate from a customary rule. The Council may also take action that overrides the treaty obligations of member states, as was confirmed by the International Court of Justice in the Lockerbie case. And in any event, Article 103 of the Charter provides that in the event of a conflict between the obligations of the members of the United Nations under the present charter and their obligations under any other international agreement, their obligations under the present charter shall prevail. In contrast, however, the Council is not empowered to act in breach of a peremptory norm of general international law, that is, Yuskogians. Because international law does not permit derogations from such peremptory norms, 
and member states of the UN are incompetent to vest the Security Council with such a power. The Appeals Chamber of the Tribunal, that's my tribunal, the Yugoslav Tribunal, has also expressed the view that the Security Council must respect the peremptory norms of international law. And my footnote tells me this was in the Tadic case. That Tadic case, the decision was uh, virtually written by Judge Cassese, to whom Professor Chinking uh, referred. And I just want also to pay tribute to Professor Cassese for his seminal work in the area of international criminal justice. That decision, the Tadic decision, laid the foundation for the jurisdictional basis of the tribunal. It cleared all the jurisdictional issues and allowed the tribunal thereafter to concentrate on the mechanics of trials. And that is essentially the, the contribution of Judge Cassese. Now the last thing I said was that the Appeals Chamber has also expressed the view that the Security Council must respect peremptory norms of international law. For example, it is inconceivable that the Security Council could adopt a resolution that could reasonably be interpreted as authorizing the killing of civilians in an enforcement action under Chapter 7. And using the examples of Yuskogin's given by the International Law Commission in its commentary on Article 53 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, it would be equally inconceivable that the Security Council could adopt a resolution that could reasonably be interpreted, be interpreted as authorizing participation in the slave trade, in piracy, or in genocide. I am unable to accept the contention that the Security Council is not bound by Euskogens because Chapter 7 of the Charter does not require it to conduct a legal evaluation of the positions of the parties when making a decision under that chapter. The absence of such an explicit requirement does not, of course, mean that the Security Council is free to act in disregard of a peremptory norm of general international law if the UN Charter in general and Chapter 7 in particular are open to the interpretation that the Council does not have that freedom. It is also said that the concept of Yuskogens, taken from the law of treaties, cannot easily be transplanted into the law of the United Nations. But in my opinion, that view overlooks the essentially consensual character of the UN Charter, including Chapter 7. Although in the Council's exercise of its wide discretionary and unilateral powers, the Council looks like a domestic legislature, that does not detract from the status of the UN Charter as an agreement between states. Moreover, the case for the accountability of the Security Council is strengthened by the competence of the International Court of Justice, the principal judicial organ of the United Nations, 
to examine and review a Chapter 7 resolution of the Security Council to the extent that this is necessary for the determination of a case before it. And the ICJ exercised this incidental review jurisdiction in the Lockerbie decisions. And so did the Hague Tribunal in Tadich. But this jurisdiction, mind you, is incidental to the performance of the judicial function. It is not an original substantive jurisdiction to review. And it is doubtful whether either the ICJ or the Hague Tribunal could rule a Security Council resolution invalid. There is a kind of dissonance between the very wide powers of the Security Council under Chapter 7 and the admittedly disorganized, disparate, and non-monolithic character of the international legal order. When to that is added the non-representative character of the Council, which consists of only 15 of the 193 UN member states, there is all the more reason why it needs to ensure that it has substantial grounds for the action that it takes under Chapter 7. It must not appear to be acting arbitrarily or irresponsibly. In short, it must, in the exercise of its discretion, and as with any other grant of discretion to a public body at the domestic or international level, act lawfully and conform to the rule of law. It must be as transparent as possible in the exercise of its discretionary powers under Chapter 7. And to that end, it should at all times identify with clarity the trigger for the measures that it adopts under that chapter. That is, at all times, it must expressly identify what it is that constitutes a threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression. This is not something that should be taken for granted. Opacity in public bodies, whether at the domestic or international level, is one of the greatest force of the rule of law. To moderate the negative effects of the Security Council's broad powers under Chapter 7, and in order to promote greater understanding within the international community as to why and how these powers are exercised, I would like to suggest that guidelines should be established for the exercise of these discretionary powers. The guidelines should be established by a group of states consisting of not only Security Council members, but also members of the General Assembly which, after all, has a role, albeit a secondary one, in the maintenance of international peace and security. The guidelines once established should be scrupulously followed by the Council, and if that is done, they would result in a more consistent and even-handed approach to action taken under Article 7, under Chapter 7 of the Charter. Ultimately, this would give the Security Council greater credibility in the eyes of the international community in the discharge of its enormous responsibilities under Chapter 7. 
thereby promoting the international rule of law. And I would like further to suggest that one of these guidelines should be that the Security Council should exercise its Chapter 7 powers on behalf of the international community by taking enforcement action in respect of a state only if there is clear evidence that the state is unable or unwilling to take the necessary action to maintain or restore international peace and security. This is a reflection of the International Criminal Court's complementarity principle adapted to the sphere of international peace and security. There will seem to be a strong case for characterizing enforcement action, taken in the absence of such evidence as interference in the internal affairs of a country and a breach of Article 27. Another suggested guideline is that in adopting Chapter 7 measures, the Council should only derogate from a rule of customary international law when such action is absolutely necessary to maintain or restore international peace and security. As previously indicated, there is a fundamental principle of international humanitarian law, which is itself a principle of Euskogens, and which is as binding on the Council as it is on anyone else. I refer to the prohibition in international humanitarian law of the killing of civilians and the use of indiscriminate force causing civilian casualties. We consistently apply this principle in trials at our tribunal in respect of the criminal responsibility of individuals. This is a principle of very long standing, which no, must now be regarded as a peremptory norm of general international law, from which no derogation is permitted. While the Security Council may adopt a resolution authorizing enforcement action under Chapter 7, there can be nothing in that authorization that could reasonably be interpreted as sanctioning the killing of civilians. When that happens, there needs to be an investigation by an independent body. I say nothing about the Constitution or membership of this body, but it seems clear that there is a need for such a body to carry out an investigation that would, in appropriate circumstances, lead to further action under international humanitarian law. In the same way that there is a hue and cry when other forces kill civilians, the international community must take notice and call for action when civilians are killed in a UN-authorized operation. In sum, the Security Council, a body with vast discretionary powers, no matter how it is perceived, whether as a world legislature or world policeman, is not unbound by law. It is bound by the law of the Charter which requires it to act in conformity with the principles of justice and international law. Because so much prominence in world affairs is given to threats to peace and security, the Council is, or appears to be, at the heart of the question whether there is an international rule of law. The Security Council can be a potent force for either achieving or frustrating the achievement of an international rule of law. 
I turn now to the third element, which focuses on the independence of the judiciary. There are a wide variety of fora at the international level in which disputes are adjudicated under the law. The ICJ deals with claims between states. With regard to individuals, the governing rule is that which is set out in Article 14.1 of the ICCPR and other national and other international and national instruments. Under the ICCPR, everyone is entitled to a fair and public hearing by a competent, independent, and impartial tribunal in criminal and other proceedings. And this is a rule of customary international law. The need to observe the rule of law at the international level is as urgent as it is at the domestic level. An important factor at the domestic level that works to ensure the independence of judges from the political directorate is that representations to the executive in respect of conditions of service do not come directly from the judges themselves. Most usually, those representations would come from a ministry or government agency to the executive arm of the government, with the result that there is no direct interfacing between judges and the ex executive with respect to conditions of service. That buffer between the judiciary and the executive may sometimes be missing at the international level, where more often than not, it is the judges themselves who lobby and make representations to the political directorate about conditions of service. This personal interfacing between the international judiciary and the executive may create an impression that the judges are under pressure from the executive regarding such matters as the most economical and expeditious judicial process. International judges, therefore, can find themselves in a very delicate position when they must hold face-to-face -face meetings with members of those various bodies who are empowered to take decisions that affect their tenure of office and general conditions of service. <coughs> if the nascent field of international criminal justice is to grow and make its contribution to peace and reconciliation in the world, the greatest care must be taken that nothing is done at the level of the political direct directorate to affect or that may be perceived as affecting the independence of the judges. Each international court must ensure that it has in its statute or some other relevant instrument guarantees of the kind set out in the ICJ statute. Fixed tenure, and non-reduction non of emoluments. It is to be noted that the ICJ statute requires for its amendment a vote of two-thirds majority by the General Assembly. These fundamental safeguards for the independence of the ICJ judges are typical of those found in constitutional democracies. At the same time, there is a corresponding need for a code of ethics to govern judges at the international level. May I now turn to my fourth element, 
of the descriptive framework, which is that all of the other principles apply in a system that recognizes among its core fundamental values respect for the inherent dignity of the human person and democratic governance. This final element gives recognition to what can fairly be described as the greatest development in international law in the last century. That is the tremendous advance made in the protection of fundamental human rights. This is a pervasive and permeating element of the application of the international rule of law. It provides an overarching principle within which the other three elements of my descriptive framework operate. Namely, that everyone is equally entitled to the protection of the law, everyone is equally accountable to the law, and the claims of everyone are determined by an independent judiciary. Respect for the inherent dignity of the human person is a value that is protected by customary international law, entrenched as it is in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the ICCPR, and other international and national instruments. More debatable is whether the principle of democratic governance is reflected in customary international law. But the strong moral imperatives which constitute its foundation justify its inclusion, if only as Lex Ferrando. Ladies and gentlemen, although today we have devoted some time to the importance of international peace and security and the relationship of these issues to the international rule of law, the issue of an international rule of law is wider than that question. In fact, its reach is the same as that of international law itself. That is, the relations between states, the relations between states and individuals, the relations between states and international organizations, and the relations between international organizations and individuals. Ladies and gentlemen, the law must rule in the nooks and crannies of all these areas, from the preservation of individual rights and democratic values, to the preservation of the environment, and to trade and economic relations, economic relations between states. In this melange of global issues, the international rule of law, still imperfect, and less flourishing than its counterpart at the domestic level, primarily because of the disorganization of the international legal order and the influence of real politics, finds itself in a struggle to break through and transcend the many challenges that we face today. But I remain optimistic that it will. Ladies and gentlemen, Norman Manley was a Jamaican Rhodes Scholar at Jesus College, Oxford. Not only was he the father of Michael Manley, whom I mentioned previously, he was also the father of Jamaica's independence. And Manley had this to say about the rule of law, and I quote, any country that can maintain the force of developed public opinion, confidence in, 
and respect for and a determination to maintain the rule of law is safe from the extremes of dictatorship, be they of the left or the right. Is safe too from all those hysterical and unreal fears that lead to the distortions of prejudice which erupt in conduct that itself is a denial of any civilized maintenance of the rule of law. End of quote. What Manley here and throughout his life strove to advance was a culture of respect for the rule of law. And I submit it is a culture well worth building at both the domestic and international levels. We must, like Manley, see in the rule of law the best deterrent against dictatorship and concomitantly the best guarantee of international peace and security. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Judge Robinson, for that very rich and at the same time, I think, both showing the sort of almost simple essence of the rule of law and yet its great complexity in application and bringing together um, those elements. Uh, we have a short time left and Judge Robinson has agreed to take questions. So, um, <laughs> give me a minute, um, people are already putting up their hands. Time is brief, as I said, we only have about 20 minutes, so please keep your questions brief and to the point. Um, what I'll do is take several at one go and then allow Judge Robinson to answer them together. And please, could you say who you are? I think you were so rapid that you should be first. <laughs> so. uh, yes, mics are coming, yeah, thank you. Uh. Behind, there. Uh, good evening, Your Honor. My name is Huang Vu. I'm an undergraduate here at the LSE. Um, your speech has, uh, your lecture has told us uh, the answer to my question in, in very substantially, but I would just like to answer, uh, to ask it uh, directly. What do you think of Amnesty International's uh, call for the arrest and trial of George W. Bush? Of who? Uh, former U.S. President George W. Bush. Oh. And Michael Gavrilovich, uh, I have followed the the International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia, especially with regard to Mr. Milosevic's trial. And I, I expected here that you would build on the experience of this tribunal, uh, uh, Judge Robinson, uh, because after all, that is the only practical experience that we've had so far, at least that you will have had so far. Uh, what concerns me here is, is it a UN body or is it a UN Security Council body? Bearing in mind that not one of the Security Council members was prepared to be subject to the same laws as those that they were enforcing uh, on a specific territory, namely former Yugoslavia, and making it ad hoc uh, as well. There is nothing universal about this. Would you not have welcomed that all the Security Council members in this case would bind themselves by the same laws as those that they want to judge? And would you not want them to also uh, accept that the General Assembly has something to say on that. 
because you must be aware that Mr. Milosevic simply declared this whole tribunal as illegitimate on that very basis. It was rejected, but there are many, many people in the legal profession that actually agree with it. Thank you. Um, we'll go up towards the back. Um, yes, the woman yeah, with, with the long hair. <laughs> Hello, uh, Paulina Levina. I'm a former student at the LSE. Um, Your Honor, in speaking about accountability, you cited the ICTY's impressive record of prosecuting individuals across the full hierarchy of the command structure in the former Yugoslavia. So this is more a question about um, the permanent tribunal, which has set up, obviously, the International Criminal Court. And with the International Criminal Court deciding that, and taking the position that they will prosecute only those most responsible um, for, for the crimes under his jurisdiction um, and that it's operating in situations mostly of ongoing conflict, um, do you think that the achievement of accountability uh, is actually possible when, you know, if they prosecute the first, second and third person, what happens to the fourth, fifth and sixth? Okay, I'll take one more in this round. We'll come over to this side. <coughs> Spread across the... Sorry, um, you spoke about the... Sorry, who are you? I'm sorry, I'm Jessica Lacey. I'm a former Leiden University student. Um, you spoke about sort of practical issues with regards to impartiality of international judges. And I was wondering, do you see any practical impediments at the moment um, to the right to a fair trial in international criminal courts and tribunals? Okay, I think we'll allow Judge Robinson to respond to those. The Very mixed bag. Yes, a mixed bag. The, the first one was um, asked for a comment on the call by Amnesty for the arrest of um, George Bush. I, I believe I might have seen a reference to this, but I, I can't comment on it because I don't know the basis on which the, the, that call has been made. Now, the question about the UN or the UN Security Council, whether, whether the tribunal is a UN or a UN Security Council body, well, it was actually established by a resolution of the Security Council. The Security Council is a UN body, so I would want to say it is a United Nations body, and in fact, its full title is the United Nations International uh, Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia. You commented on the ad hoc um, character of the tribunal. Yes, it is ad hoc as distinct from the ICC statute, which is, uh, which is uh, treaty-based. Um, but that is what we have. Um, yes, I certainly agree the General Assembly should be um, more involved in international peace and security. Uh, you can see that I spent some time in my lecture on the thesis that the Security Council is not unbound by law. My own view is that the Security Council has too much power and I'm very disturbed about its exercise of those powers and I refer to the uneven manner in which those powers are exercised. So yes, I mean, I'm all for anything which would have the General Assembly become more involved in 
matters of international peace and security. And remember the Uniting for Peace resolution in the Korean War, which was adopted precisely for that purpose, to enable the General Assembly to discharge its secondary role in the maintenance of international peace and security when the Council, the Security Council, had failed. Now, you asked about um, the, those um, who are not tried by the uh, tribunal, numbers four, five, and six. Well, don't forget that the tribunal was never intended to try all cases of breaches of international humanitarian law in the former Yugoslavia. It could never do that. And an essential part of international humanitarian law is the jurisdiction of national courts. I say this over and over again. The jurisdiction is primarily territorial. The jurisdiction is first and foremost with the territory. And in my view, the rule which is in the ICC, the complementarity rule, should become the general rule. And you can see that I tried to adapt it to international peace and security. It is only when there's a failure or there's an inability or an unwillingness on the part of the national courts to try persons that the international jurisdiction should step in. That's why, I, that's why I made that proposal. It's only in that case, I think, that the Security Council should, um, should actually um, step in. Now, the, the, oh, the, you, you asked about the practical um, references that I made to the, the difficulties faced by, by judges uh, who have to lobby. I find it very uncomfortable. But I don't like it. Um, lobbying for matters of condition of service. But it has in no way affected the, um, the right to a fair trial. It hasn't affected the right to a fair trial. But I should say, to give you a full picture, that we do have a person who is called a registrar and who, in principle, could do this. But if you have a president, you know, the registrar doesn't have the influence, will not have the influence with the Security Council and the General Assembly as the President does. And so the practice has developed um, for the President to go. Now the same thing <coughs> obtains in relation to the ICJ. Of course the ICJ has been there from um, 1945. But the ICJ does not deal with the liberty of the subject. You know? And there is no issue that is as consequential as one pertaining to the liberty of the subject. And nothing should be done or appear <coughs> to have the consequence of affecting the independence of the judges. So it's in that context that I, that I mentioned it. I think we've got time for probably one more round. Should come up to this side. I haven't had anybody from this side. Yes. Yes, 
say again. I, I, I forgot to mention that in relation to the question about the number of cases, four, five, and six, that um, the Security Council did mandate us in 2003 to transfer the lower level cases, the smaller fry, to the region. And we have been doing that. And not only doing that, we have been doing capacity building in the region mm. so as to ensure that when the tribunal closes, the judiciary in the region is, um, is fully able continue the work. Yes? Uh, two quick questions. Marco Gazic is my name. Uh, question one. Uh, don't you think that the tribunal uh, being established by the dictates of the Security Council instead of by treaty as is normal in all other uh, uh, international courts uh, previously should, uh, uh, should have been, don't you think that has set a dangerous precedent in which the strong, i.e. the Security Council members, judge the weak and uh, are never judged themselves? And my second question is, isn't the biggest obstacle to building an international rule of law the fact that the crime against peace of starting and waging aggressive war, which was defined as the supreme war crime at Nuremberg when the Nazis were being judged, has been excluded from the statutes of all of today's international courts so that some countries and alliances can uh, act without a Security Council resolution, uh, such as NATO did, for example, in attacking uh, Yugoslavia over Kosovo, uh, and in, in indeed more recently in destroying the city of Sirte while acting ostensibly to protect cities and civilians within them uh, in the same country. I am K. Mahesh, I'm an LLM student. I just wanted to know when you talk about the Security Council, uh, is it not possible, don't you think that we should try to democratize the Security Council membership, include more members on certain principles to make it more democratic and effective? Just too many here. I'll go back up there. Thank you, Yach. Um, I'm Rosana Garciandia, a reader in international law from a university in Spain. Uh, you mentioned uh, the responsibility of states, you mentioned uh, accountability, and you mentioned also the economic, social, and cultural rights. That uh, made me think about failed states or failing states, this, this concept. Uh, I wanted to ask you from your, from your international privileged perspective, uh, would you have any specific comments on these states and uh, do you consider it would be adequate to, to open a discussion about uh, the nature of these states or the condition of these states? Uh, should they still be considered as states or any other formula that you could suggest? <coughs> Thank you very much. Very broad question. Yes, it's fine. Hello, um, Tom Aparo from uh, Leeds University. Um, I was uh, listening in and talking about, and uh, a lady asked a question about individual responsibility. In, um, in, the, in the Yugoslav uh, trial, uh, the objective, um, sorry, uh, the objective of command responsibility was put in place to take away uh, like guilt from uh, the community. To what extent does the idea combined with that of joint uh, joint uh, enterprise, criminal enterprise, come in, and uh, how far can this joint criminal enterprise idea really reach? Can it reach even to the point that the UN failed to prevent certain 
uh, genocide, for example, in um, Srebrenica, when UN, the UN Secretary General didn't allow for bombardment or didn't allow for air, air support. To <coughs> what extent can then they be held accountable in, in the eyes of the joint criminal enterprise? Idea. To, to what extent who can be held accountable? For example, uh, the example I use is uh, the Security General of the UN at the time does not allow for air support to be given to the Netherlands troops that are there as peacekeeping troops. Um, to what extent can he be held accountable in preventing uh, genocide? And failing to prevent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sorry, fa failing to prevent genocide. Thank you. Um, go back up there. Hi, my name is Barbara. I'm a master's student of international relations here. Um, it's been said by some that the Milosevic trial was in fact a show trial. Um, in this sense, the focus on individual responsibility took away not only uh, what the, how the community perceived what was happening and how the community um, participated in what happened in Yugoslavia, but also um, it raised questions about um, punishment, the establishment of historical narratives, um, the attempt to impose some kind of um, single memory or truth, and even, I think Milosevic even um, said that it was a case of victor's justice. So I was wondering um, if all this can not only potentially affect the work of the ICTY and its authority, but also how it can compromise the healing process and in terms of retribution and reconciliation. So I was wondering, um, how do you see this show trial phase of international criminal law and how can it be um, the show trial. Yeah, and how can you avoid um, deteriorating what happens once sentences and um, justice is made by a tribunal? I guess. Thank you. You've been trying very hard. <laughs> so I'll take this last one for this round. I think this will be the last one actually as well. So uh, here. Can you make it brief? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, Thank you very much. My name is Gavin. Uh, I'm a student here at the LSE. Uh, you spoke of the need for justice at the international level, and I'm wondering if you would consider that there are valid alternatives to a formal prosecutorial framework for achieving justice. Uh, and here I'm thinking in particular of uh, traditional African methods, gachacha courts in Rwanda that have been used as alternatives to prosecution. Thank you. Again, turn to yes. Oh, oh um, thanks. Um, Did you get the last one? Yes, traditional. Yeah, uh, alternatives, alternatives to, yeah, alternatives such as traditional. Do you include in that truth commissions? You, you include in that truth commissions? Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm. But I think the, the first question um, that I see here was concerning the the establishment of the tribunal by Security Council dictat as against being established by um, by a treaty. Um, I don't think I can say too much um, too much about that. You know, I, I fully respect the establishment of of um, tribunals by by treaty. 
but but here I think it's very difficult to to see or to argue against the manner in which the tribunal was established. You know? so all of those jurisdictional uh, matters were dealt with in uh, in Tadic and and essentially, really, it's it's a political um, question that you're asking, which is very difficult for me to answer. It's a, it's really a political issue whether you see um, the establishment of the tribunal as something that should be done by treaty or by the council itself. Um, aggression, yes. Um, bear in mind, of course, that. I should say that I'm, I'm all for um, including aggression. Yeah? And in fact, in 1974, I was in the Sixth Committee when the definition of aggression was, uh, was adopted. So I'm very familiar with it, with the work on that. And I regret that um, the, in the review of the ICC statute, they were not able to achieve more in um, including the crime of aggression in the statute of the of the ICC. I'm all for um, the membership of the Security Council being enlarged. You would have gathered this from what I said about the non-representative character. You call it um, undemocratic. I don't have any strong argument against that characterization and I think the sooner it is enlarged then of course the more acceptable will be the decisions that it, um, that it makes but I really believe that if the guidelines that I suggested and this is an idea that I've been developing over the past um, 13, 14 years if those guidelines were adopted and adhered to, then the, the Council's uh, decision-making under Chapter 7 would not meet with the, the opposition and the criticism that, that it now has. You, know? uh, you asked about um, failing states, whether failed states, and whether they are still states. Uh, not exactly within the subject matter that I I raised, and so I suppose I could rule it as a, as a, as irrelevant. But that would not be that would not be courteous. But I don't know what what are the characteristics of a failed state. I don't know. I haven't studied the, the subject. I haven't given it the attention that it deserves. Uh, did you have in mind any particular state? Uh, Somalia, yeah. Mm, mm. <laughs> I see, Somalia, I see, okay. It's there. <laughs> yes. But I, I certainly agree that I would think they are still a state. Yeah? I mean, that's my instinctive reaction without studying it. Yeah? The, the issue very closely, I would, I would instinctively argue that these states, which are called failed states, are, are, still, are still states. That is what I would want to argue. Um, and to what extent would oh I see this is the question now about the the, the um, army 
people who did not prevent genocide, to what extent they are accountable. Joint That is certainly something which um, could, be, could be looked into. But joint criminal enterprise is not an easy uh, topic. If you, if you follow the matter, you will see that my tribunal has taken a particular course. The ICC has taken a different course. And then the Cambodia Tribunal has followed the, the ICC. So we are like the Lone Ranger <laughs> at this time. Uh, Milosevic, you know I was involved in the trial, so I don't want to, uh, to, to speak about it. But show trials, and what was the question about show trials? Because in the ICC statute, I know that there are provisions which deal with that, which I don't know. I don't believe um, the description show trial is used. I was also involved in the, the work on the ICC statute, and it relates to the question, the complementarity principle. It relates to the question whether you can say the state, the national state, was. Um, unwilling to exercise or unable to exercise jurisdiction. The, the show trial argument can be used to show the unwillingness or inability. Now the alternative, um, quite frankly, I, I don't know much about the, I don't know enough and I really apologize for this, about the gachacha um, trials to achieve justice. But, you know, in, in principle, I don't have an objection to um, looking at other things. You will see that I'm, by nature, I'm a very uh, open-minded open uh, um, lawyer and individual. Truth commissions, yes, but truth commissions don't really determine guilt. They help in reconciliation. And I actually served on the Haiti Truth and Justice uh, Commission that was established by um, established in 1991. Um, if there are other questions, I'm quite willing to take them to the extent that, that I can. Well, I think actually we are at eight o'clock, okay. and we have okay. <laughs> sort of closing yes. requirements yes. Okay. Um, from the school. Mm -hmm. So, thank you again, though, for your offer. Of